Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Don't know if you were watching the football game last night, the Buffalo Bills-Cincinnati Bengals game, but I would assume, I would bet that even if you weren't, you're very aware by now of what happened. I don't know how anyone could not be aware. It's been what people have been talking about all day today. Uh, Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin made a tackle, stood up, and then collapsed. And according to the Buffalo Bills, suffered a cardiac arrest. It was a totally benign play. It's one of the interesting things, uh, totally off topic where we're going here, but it's one of the really interesting things that TV networks are going out of their way not to show a replay of the hit. And yet there was literally nothing in this particular hit that was gruesome or malicious or dirty or anything. And then other hits that are horrible, they'll show repeatedly. Anyway. Point is, uh, he had car- he went into cardiac arrest on the field. We learned later that he had CPR done, that he had uh, the defibrillators used. There was all kinds of stuff. His heartbeat was brought back. We don't really know what state he's in now, except that he's in intensive care and critical condition. But as I was watching this, I don't want to get into all the how things happened or whether football is dangerous or all that kind of thing. As I was watching this, one thing was coming to mind, and that is, thank goodness he had this happen, if he wasn't going to have this happen in a hospital and he had to have it happen somewhere, thank goodness it was on an NFL football field because there were teams of doctors ready to jump in who clearly were capable of doing what needed to be done. But would that have been the case elsewhere? Dr. David Levy is a legend in the world of sports medicine. He's a member of the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, as is his wife. He is a man who has pioneered all kinds of things in that field. Uh, he has been a bull, uh, Ticat team doctor. He's helped with the Bulldogs. He's been a McMaster team doctor. He's helped hundreds of athletes from this area and others over the years. He joins us now. Doctor, thank you for this today. Uh, you're welcome, Scott, and Happy New Year to you and your family. To you as well. Thank you. So, what is your thought when you're watching this, watching it or finding out about it afterwards? And I don't know if these kind of things ever cross your mind, but I think that, as I said, I think that having this happen to him on an NFL field might've been about the best place other than a hospital, but how many, if this had happened in any other place, how many other leagues, how many other levels of sports would, would have had the people nearby that would have been able to revive him this way? Well, uh, that's a very good question. Um, Certainly when you get to the professional level, you have, um, you have experienced uh, athletic therapists, you have EMS and ambulance usually available. I know we always did for the Ticats, they do for the Bulldogs, they do for us with the Toronto Rock. The, the EMS people are always there. There's usually a physician there and there are good athletic therapists there. But when you get to minor leagues, that may not happen. This particular injury can happen with any projectile. It doesn't happen to have, have to have to happen with a hit in football. You can get hit by a baseball, which was when I was training was the most common cause uh, for this type of injury. And they were worried about little leaguers baseball when a when a pitch comes and hits a young child right in the right spot in, in front of the heart. You can run into this problem uh, where you get agitation of the heart and it disrupts the rhythm and you can going to cardiac arrest. And that's basically what happened last night with a, a clean but very hard hit right in the right spot. It's, it was just bad luck that it happened uh, to this gentleman, but it wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't malicious in any way. But this can happen with a hockey puck. It can happen with a uh, lacrosse ball. 
So any projectile that hits you in the right spot at the wrong time, even at the wrong period of time within the rhythm of your heart, that can cause this disruption and it can cause death. So definitely the fact that this happened and it happened on an NFL field with physicians from both teams, with uh, experienced uh, athletic therapy staff, uh, certainly made the difference and hopefully will make the difference uh, with this uh, patient and this player. I don't know because we haven't heard and I couldn't, we couldn't see it. I don't know if when they brought out the equipment like a defibrillator or that kind of thing, I don't know if those were on the sidelines or if that came when the ambulance arrived on the field. But <clears throat> if we were in Hamilton at a Ticat game and a defibrillator that the, not you, not the doctors, but the equipment, would the equipment be there to handle that kind of thing? Okay. So the athletic therapists have a large equipment bag that would have all those sort of things. I mean, First of all, you need equipment that can remove helmets and shoulder pads. You can't put a defibrillator on a person's chest if you have shoulder pads on. And so you have to get all these things off quickly. So you have to have the right equipment just to remove helmets if you case you have to do an airway or shoulder pads if you need to put pads on the chest. Uh, you need to have an emergency defibrillator. Um, now, it, we do have one, but also there's EMS there that are very well trained, uh, the ambulance folks who are very well trained in this sort of uh, genre. So if something like this happens, they're called out right away. So by the time you get the equipment off that you need to, usually they're there with that equipment. But we definitely do carry that equipment uh, because things can happen in a hotel. I mean, they can, they can right. happen overnight when the team is staying somewhere. So it, it, it doesn't always happen just on the field. So you need to have all this uh, emergency equipment there. You need airway tubes. Uh, oximeters, you need different things to be able to evaluate the player. But truly, <laughs> the most important thing is not just what's in the bag, but who's carrying the bag. Of course. So having athletic therapists who are well-trained and, and team physicians who uh, are well-trained. Our, our, I know with any of the pro teams, uh, we've been, I've been very, very fortunate to work with excellent uh, athletic therapists uh, in any of the leagues I've worked with, and they all take uh, ALS courses, uh, um, acute life support uh, courses. They're, they're, you need someone who's well-educated, experienced, and can adapt to the situation, stay cool, collected, and focused, and know what to do. That's much more important than what's in the bag, but what's in the bag needs to be there as well. So. I know that a number of years ago, and many people will remember Clint Malarchuk, the goalie for the Buffalo Sabres, who had his throat slit by a skate. And at the time, the story was that the Buffalo Sabres trainer had been a, vet, a medic in Vietnam and was probably the only NHL trainer who knew what to do for that kind of injury to save him. Now everybody gets all kinds of training in those things. The, the, the trainers and the medical staff at, at arenas and fields are vastly different. Um, what's, and I, I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to say this because of patient confidentiality or anything, but what's the most, I don't know, the, the, the scariest moment that you've had? Because I'm assuming that even as a doctor, you know what you're doing. There is still adrenaline going when something like this happens. What's, what's the one that comes to mind for you that, that you were most filled with adrenaline when you had to deal with it? It's, um, I mean, as you say, there's, there's a number of cases like that. Um, and, and they don't always have to be life-threatening. It can be uh, nauseating dislocations and stuff. But uh, of the life-threatening ones, and it, it's just strange because I was watching the hockey game with two minutes left. I moved over to the Buffalo Bills game just to see the score, and it was just at the time that this happened. 
and it brought back memories because in 1975 I was uh, a young doctor on the sideline with the Thai Cats when uh, Tom Pate oh of had course. a similar sort of hit, got up, clapped his hands, said "Let's go, guys," and then crashed to the ground and was unconscious and passed away two years later. I mean, sorry, two, two, days. two days later, yeah. never regaining consciousness. His was not a cardiac event; it was a, a cerebral event. He he had a a cerebral aneurysm, a bleed in the brain that caused swelling and eventually led to his death. So, But it's a terrible feeling, and you need to get out there and try to assess what's going on, and, and sometimes there's nothing you can do about things mm. other than try to get them to uh, a medical center as quickly as possible. We have to run, but just one more quick thing. You mentioned hockey, and we've talked about hockey a couple times. In most, if not all, arenas now, they have the defibrillator machine in a situation, now, I know you haven't been there to be involved in this one down in Buffalo, so you don't know all the details, but generally with this kind of thing, would that device have been enough in this case that potentially it could have been useful? Well, yes, but that's what the, uh, they have portable uh, defibrillators, the AEDs, the emergency defibrillators that they did use. Right, and so if, if one of the ones in the local rinks, if this had happened, that might have been enough, that, that might have been good enough technology to help? It may have been good enough technology to help, yes. Hmm. Well, there's some optimism, uh, and we're hoping for better news with, uh, with what's coming out of Buffalo. Uh, Dr. David Levy, one of, the, uh, one of the greats in the field of sport medicine, and I, I'm not just saying that because you're on the air. You really, uh, everyone knows that you really are. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I am truly hopeful that nobody who is listening right now is going to hear this topic and say, oh yeah, that was my day. Because today is generally considered D-Day, I am told, I read. Divorce day. Lawyers say, many lawyers say that the number of people who seek out their help to begin the proceedings is highest the first business day, the first working day after the Christmas holidays, which I guess makes some sense. You've been (laughs) with this person now for a bunch of days and you can't take it anymore. Although why would it be this day opposed to any other day? I don't know. I want to bring in Tracy Miller. She is not only a, uh, a lawyer who specializes in these kind of things, she is also the co-host of the Divorce Solutions Podcast. She does that with Jamie West. It's a, uh, if, if this is something that you are working through, uh, it is an excellent listen to, uh, to help you with that. Tracy, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Have you ever heard of Divorce Day before? I have not until, uh, until I was talking to you. I, it makes sense, but no, I hadn't heard of it before. So it, when you say it makes sense and you sort of, if, if, even if no one has walked in and said, you know what, Tracy, I need your help today because today is divorce day, so let's get this going. As you think about this, is this time of year a busy time for this kind of thing? Yeah, I think it is. I think um, there's certainly people that, you know, you talk to several months before and they want to just put it off. They don't want to disrupt the holidays, especially if they have kids and families and, you know, they just don't want to do it then. But definitely there's cases I've had that people have put it on hold and said, you know, we're going to, we're going to move ahead with it in January, but I just want to put it on hiatus till then. I was talking to someone on the show a couple of weeks ago, and it was about statistics that seem to show 
that Canada was doing better at marriage, that we were having fewer divorces. Now, the, the, the person who came on said, yeah, those stats aren't really telling because the reason our numbers are way down is because way fewer people are getting married. So therefore you're going to have way fewer divorces, but relatively speaking, the percentages are about the same. Uh, Do you share that? Are are the percentages about the same or have we figured this out a little better? You know, I took a look before I knew I was going to talk to you today. And and I think, um, I think maybe it has declined a little, but I, I think the explanation and there's an awful lot of people that live together and when you're a divorce lawyer, you do a lot of uh, separations where people haven't gotten married. So not really a reflection of how many people split, um, because there's a lot of people that end up retaining family law lawyers and, and resolving their issues that just never get married, right? I, 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 I admit that this is kind of depressing, although you have to deal with it every day. But are, a higher percentage of people who you deal with who are just common law who are splitting up or higher percentage who are married and splitting up? Um, you know, offhand, I would say it's maybe a little more people that are married, but there's a lot of cases you deal with that are common law. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's definitely over the last, I don't know, five, ten years has certainly increased, I think. But, yeah, we see a lot of people that are cohabs or that are, you know, slang for living together. Mm-hmm. One of the suggestions was that uh, in going back to this discussion I had with this other person a little while back, um, was that we had a spike in divorces when the, it became a lot easier to, to get divorced in this country. And then it sort of got back to its normal level. It, is, is it easy? Is it too easy to get divorced in this country now? Is it too easy to just cut the ties and therefore you don't need to try to work through the issues or is it the proper degree of difficulty or is it too tough? Well, I'll tell you, I don't think it's too easy, and I and I can tell you why. I mean, you can, if you've been a year separate and apart, you can process a divorce, and you don't need any more than that. But I think in and of itself, for most of the people that I see, it's just not an easy process for them, right? So the fact that you can get a divorce within a year and you don't have to prove adultery, you don't have to prove cruelty, you don't have to kind of, you know, go into the worst issues in family law and, and go through all of that just to get divorced, um, I think is a good thing. But, you know, I don't, it's certainly not easy for people. But how many people do that and how many people end up in, and I know this is partially what your podcast talks about, how many people end up in absolutely crushing, bankrupting court fights that just ruin both sides? Well, you know, the last stats I looked at, I think it's over 60% of people, at least in family court now, are self-reps. And I think that speaks to the fact that people just aren't, can't afford to have expensive legal battles anymore, nor should they, I guess. Um, the number that devolve into that kind of crushing litigation, in my experience, there aren't often that many of them. There's an awful lot of people that would start a court action and then they resolve it, right? The, the vast majority of cases that end up in the court system resolve before they ever do the big glossy trials that you see in TV. Because they because they sort of get a, a burst of maturity or because they see what it's going to cost them and say, this just doesn't make any sense? I think it's both. I think that, I think it's a process, right? I think you can have people, because when they separate, in my experience, there'll be one client who's made up their mind, they've made the decision. The other person may be lagging six months or a year behind them in the whole process because there's a whole process that they go through. And sometimes I think people start 
into court as a reaction, right? They can't deal with it. They don't want to be separated, and they just kind of turtle and don't want to deal with it. And then people are left with, you know, if I want to move this ahead, this is the only thing I've got to do is start a court action, right? I think that's how a lot of them get started, is that people are just at different stages. So does that mean that we have more people today who are acquiescing almost to the idea that, well, this is going to happen, so let's just do it? Or are there still a lot of angry people who just are picking for a fight just to make their point or just to stick it to their partner because they just can't stand them anymore? I think there's a lot of people that are angry, right? I mean, a lot of times you deal with clients that are angry, and I think that if those people kind of get catapulted into the court system, that's the ones that get ugly, right? Because it's an acrimonious adversarial system. And if you're angry to start with, it's just not a good place for you to be. Um, But the hope is, and that's what our podcast is, the hope is people will realize you just don't have to go that route, right? You really don't. You're not going to like it. It will cost you a lot of time, money, and energy to do it that way. And I think people, because it's accessible, it's online, I think people are starting to realize you just don't have to do it that way, and it doesn't benefit you. Right. right? I mean, there's some cases should be in the court system, but I think they're few and far between. All right, so you've got the podcast. You talk about this. Your your law firm, your website talks. It's Miller Law and Mediation. You, you've got this business built up. You've got this specialty where you are helping people to avoid that stuff. But I also have to believe that there are, I'm not, I'm not throwing lawyers under the bus en masse here, but there are some lawyers who say, you know what, this can be pretty lucrative if we can make this thing drag out and get ugly. You know, I think it's like any profession. I think there's, in my opinion, people that are good at it and there's people that aren't. And there's obviously some lawyers that maybe that's their motivation. Um, I think you will find in family law, there's an awful lot of lawyers that don't want to do it that way. You're always going to have sharks, right? You're always going to have people that, you know, say, if you want to go to court, away we go. Here's how much it's going to cost you, and and off we go. But I don't honestly think the majority of family law lawyers really want to do it that way. And I don't know if we got to run. I don't know if you can answer this question, but um, I've not been down this path, thankfully. I don't intend to go down this path. If you got into a big court fight now, what does that cost in 2023? Um, You know, start to finish, one that's going to run through a trial? Yeah. Oh, geez. Um, easily over a hundred grand from start to finish. E- easily. Per because, side? Yeah, for wow. sure. I mean, I've read one where it was, uh, it was a decision and it was two weeks long and I think it was like $200,000 a side that they had spent. Because you have to appreciate when you start going to trial, that alone, if that's a couple of weeks, is going to tick along at three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 a day. Right, and then you've got two years leading up to that. This is what people don't understand: is you get into that system, you really need to have a solid understanding of just how much it's going to cost you. It's, wow. it's incredible the cost. Uh, that is uh, Tracy Miller. You can find her website miller-law.ca. You can uh, listen to the website Divorce Solutions. You can find that wherever you find your great podcast, uh, whatever that means, go find it there. Uh, Tracy, really <laughs> appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. Uh, It is uh, is kind of a bleak topic. I understand not exactly how we love to start the new year, but that's what's... They say that this is the day. This is the number one day for people beginning that process. Hope that's not you. Pray that's not you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The other day, while we were all off celebrating Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever it was you were celebrating, New Year's, Uh, 
there was some sad news from the world of not only sports, although, I mean, certainly the man was an athlete first and foremost, but he was, he was more like, I mean, I would argue he was more like, um, a statesman, I, I mean, athlete first, but he, he almost had a Muhammad Ali quality too. I'm talking about Pele, of course, because in most of the world, Pele was probably everyone in North America, I think knew the name, but he was probably less famous in North America than anywhere else in the world. Because, you know, until recently we were probably the least soccer crazy of any place on earth. But Pele was was a name that was royalty, and he, I mean in Brazil, of course, where he was from. Brazil, there I don't know that you could have possibly found anyone who was a bigger deal than Pele. But you go anywhere, and Pele was royalty. Even other soccer gods, Diego Maradona. I watched a, a video of him when he met Pele. All he wanted to do was to head the ball back and forth a few times just to be able to say, I, I, I was, I got to do that with Pele. Well, someone who got to play against Pele for a little while, uh, not many people can say they did, but, uh, John McGrain, who is a Hamilton sports hall of famer, he's a Canadian Olympian. He is, uh, he was a pro soccer player himself. Now he's a builder in that world. Uh, he joins us now, John, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing terrific. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. And, and uh, you know, you were one of the first people I thought of when I heard that Pele died because I knew that somewhere along the way back in when Pele was playing for the New York Cosmos, I believe, uh, you had had a chance to play against him. I did. It was my, my, my rookie season, my first year in, uh, in L.A., and, uh, and Pele was playing for the New York Cosmos, and that was his last year of playing professional soccer. And uh, my debut was at Giant Stadium against Pelé, Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, Giorgio Your your first game? Yeah, the first game I started was against uh, the guy who was playing right fullback at the time got injured in the game before. So they threw me in the deep end. Thank you very much. (laughs) And playing fullback, you were going to be, you're going to be seeing a lot of him because he was up front. I saw way too much of him. Let's put it that way. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, he scored a hat trick that day, and uh, <laughs> and one of them I was responsible for. So there you go. Nice debut. When? How old would you have been at that time? I was twenty-two. Okay, so you know what? I mean, twenty-two. You're an adult, but you're still a kid, especially you know as as an athlete. It, you obviously knew all about Pele as as a guy growing up. Is it? Is it impossible not to be in awe when you stand on the field and look across and see him? Well, to be honest with you, my, my first year in the North American Soccer League, uh, that is where all the big-name players came at that time because that's where all the money was. So every game I played, I was playing against the Eusebios, the Beckenbauers, uh, the Gerd Mullers, and I was playing alongside George Best at the time. So... Uh, but playing in Giant Stadium in front of close to 60,000 people uh, with an all-star cast at the, the Cosmos War, I mean, it was rather intimidating. I can guarantee you that. But, e- okay, so even with that, though, there is, I would think, in the eyes of most casual fans even, and you're not a casual fan, of course, but there is a big difference between Beckenbauer and even George Best and Pele. There, there is a different level when you talk about him. 
Well, he, as you said in your intro when you're talking about statesmen, uh, there isn't a part of the world where Pele went where he was not, the name was not recognizable. Uh, in fact, he was so valuable to the country of Brazil that the government passed a law saying that Pele could not be sold outside of Brazil. He was a national treasure. So that lets you know how big he was. Yeah, and I like I, I think there's an argument to be made. I know everybody says that there has been no bigger, more famous athlete than Muhammad Ali, and 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 certainly uh, he was known everywhere in the world. But I, I think there's an argument to be made that if you had a questionnaire around the planet at the back in the '70s, and you said who do you know more about, uh, I think you could make a case that the numbers would favor Pele. Well, I think that's got to do with the fact that soccer is a world sport. Of course, of course. And uh, it's played everywhere uh, in the smallest countries that you can think of, whereas Muhammad was a boxer. and But, but Muhammad was also a trailblazer politically and, uh, and well-respected for the stand he took on, uh, uh, you know, on Vietnam rights and so forth. But yep. as far as the name itself is concerned, I think Pelly's the most well-known individual in the world. Okay, so when you line up across from him, even though you've seen all these other great players, um, go back to my question, is, is it daunting or is at that time, if you can think of it, when you're facing someone like that, are you thinking to yourself, here's my chance to really prove myself or are you scared or what, what goes through your mind when you're facing someone like that? Because it would be the well, same I, if it was a young kid playing Gretzky for the first time in your first game or something. Well, I asked my coach, I says, you know, how am I going to play against him? Is it, you know, is he more dominant on his left or his right or whatever. And he says, well, listen, let me just tell you this. He said, great players, you can never stop great players. You can only limit them. So if you can limit them to a little bit here and there, you've done a good job. Well, he scored three goals, so obviously he didn't do a very good job of it. <laughs> but every game, again, that was my first game. I was raw as could be. Uh, and every game I played from that point forward, I got better and better and better and wiser. And then we played them about five weeks later in Los Angeles, and we beat them four to one. So we did well. Where did, where had you played prior to that? Uh, I played at Bryant Timmons Stadium in front of fifty people, three dogs, and two cats. <laughs> that was you did not go from Bryant Timmons Stadium to the New York Cosmos. Damn right, I did. Really, there was nowhere yeah, in between. I, I, well, I played in the Olympic Games for Canada, but I went to school at Simon Fraser University. And uh, the season before that, in 1976, I came home to play uh, in the National Soccer League in uh, in Hamilton for the Steelers. And and I and it, I, no, I think they were called Hamilton City at the time. Okay. And uh, and it was in the national again. It was a semi-pro league. And that was a year before I went to Los Angeles. And yeah, there were 50 people, three dogs and two cats. How? Okay. I, I mean, I don't know the story. So how did you end up, how did you find your way from Brian Timmis to the Cosmos or to uh, LA? Well, that, that year after the Olympics were over, obviously it was an opportunity to get known. Uh, I went back to Simon Fraser in September and we won the national championship and I got the MVP and, uh, uh, then I took, uh, I decided to leave school and I had to wait 90 days and I became a free agent and there were two options. One was LA and the other one was Tampa Bay. And I went to LA because Bestie was playing there. So that's how I ended up. But there was no guarantees. I went through three different camps, uh, and finally got onto the, the official, uh, 
training camp of uh, 20 players, and by the end of the season, I was a starter. When Pele, when that, when you played him, um, I remember stories. There was um, uh, there's a Hamilton guy by the name of Brian Ostrosser who uh, was a baseball player, and in his very brief time, I believe, in the major leagues, or reasonably brief, um, he got to have a locker next to Willie Mays with the New York Mets. Now, Mays, by that time, yeah. had played all of his time in San Francisco, and, and honestly, he was a broken-down version of that guy. He looked nothing like the... The, one of the greatest players of all time. Pele obviously scored three goals. He could still play, but was that more a function of his excellence or was that a function your team just wasn't very good that day? Well, this is what's interesting. Uh, Pele was still a force when he played with the New York Cosmos. And what happens sometimes, there are players who tend to play maybe one year or two years longer than they should. And then it affects their... Uh, you know, their legacy, their legacy yeah. that they leave behind. When Pele left, he he left where he could have played anywhere in the world. There's no doubt about that. He played for the Cosmos because they paid him the most money. He was making $3 million in 1976, wow. which was a fortune. Yes. And, uh, no, he, uh, he helped grow the game in North America. He did. He is the reason why the North American Soccer League became relevant, why all the great players came to play, because Pele was there. He's, that's the reason why the United States got the World Cup in 1994. Uh, and it's the reason why MLS got started, and the rest is history. The, the U.S. national team benefited from it. Well, 100%. So, 100%. I mean, as a... the one, He's the one that I think is the reason why the United States is a powerhouse in soccer in the top 20 in the world. As a kid, I remember like the biggest star for the Toronto Blizzard at the time was Brian Budd, who, you know, <laughs> good good for him. He was a he was a, you know, a good player and he was a good guy. I met him one time. He came to my school and did a, a school visit and all that kind of stuff. But there is there is a chasm between Brian Budd and Pele, and you know to bring a guy like him into the league or George Best or these guys, uh, I, I I believe you're absolutely right that, and I know that you know years later when the LA Galaxy signed David Beckham, it was a generation later, but it was the same idea. I don't think it had the yeah. same impact, but it was the same idea. Let's bring in some stars, and maybe people will pay attention. No, well, I think it did make a difference uh, when when Beckham. Uh, came into MLS, I think it gave it credibility right away. Because uh, Beckham, Beckham was definitely not finished as far as his ability was concerned. Uh, but Beckham was not the greatest player in the world. Uh, at, at, mm. See, Ever. Kelly well, is yeah. what we would call a generational player. Yep. Uh, in fact, I would even go to say that he was the greatest player of the 20th century. Well, that's, John, that's really funny because, you know, we had the World Cup just end in um, shortly before Christmas. And when that ended, all I'm seeing on YouTube, on social media, pardon me, on, on Twitter and everywhere else is Lionel Messi is now the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time. And it took all of a week and a half until Pele died for everyone to say, oh, wait a second, let me, let me rethink that. He might be second best, but there's nobody who was like Pele. Well, you know what? Sports fans have the attention span of a TC fly. Uh, <laughs> true. They will they will grab on to what is relevant at this particular moment. But I think what you have to do is taking nothing away from Messi, who I thought was absolutely fantastic at the World Cup for his age. Sure, he was brilliant. Uh, but over the totality of a person's career. Uh, 
I have to tell you, and I played against a lot of the great players. Uh, Pele uh, was, uh, for me, it was a privilege and an honor to be on the same pitch as a man like that. And there's very few people I can say that about. Now today, and I think it's more of a newer thing in the last decade or so, but today, if you were playing your first game against Pele, I'm guessing that after the game, you would have gone up to him and said, can we swap shirts? And he, uh, you know, no insult, John, but would have said, okay, I have no idea who you are, but sure. Um, You know, in later date, he would have, but did you do anything? Did you get an autograph? Did you shake his hand? Did you do, did you do anything? I think I kicked him up the ass once. <laughs> That's not exactly what I had in mind. Well, I got to tell you this, and you'll get a chuckle out of this one. First 10 minutes of the game, the ball breaks to the sidelines, and I went in like a house on fire, not knowing who it was, and I was going for the ball, and this opponent that I went in for went flying up in the air, and the ball was still in play. And it wasn't until that I looked that I realized that I just hammered Pelé. And I imme- instead of going for the ball and getting possession, I immediately ran over to him to pick him up. And the center back that I was playing with says, for God's sake, get your autograph later. <laughs> yeah, but it- that, that was the effect that he had on me that all I was concerned about was that I'd hit Pelé and I've got to help him up in case I injured him. Did you ever, though, get a chance to have a... I mean, you played in the league for a while with him. Did you ever get a chance to have a word, or was it only on the field as you were playing? Well, the problem with the Pelé was he didn't speak English. None? None. Well, uh... Not to, con- not to have a conversation. I think the only, words, the only words he knew were, give me the ball, I scored goal. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did but, that well. But he, his English was not very good at all. But... He, he was a very happy, outgoing, pleasant. Uh, he, the guys who played with him said he was great to play with. Uh, just a real gentleman. Uh, and as far as swapping shirts, uh, I think I would have to be sixth in line on my team to run and get Pele's shirt after the game. That's how much he meant to the opposition that played against them. Do you regret, I mean, even though you might have been sixth, do you regret in retrospect not? getting an autograph or not getting a shirt or not asking for something? Well, the interesting part is I never, when I was playing against these guys and I played against George and I played against Johan as well and Eusebio and Beckenbauer, uh, I didn't look at them as superstars. I couldn't do that and be effective. I had to look at them as just being an ordinary player. And I went into the game with the mentality that it's me against you. Uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure. And sometimes I wasn't very nice with them. And when the game was finished, it was all about winning and losing, not about getting autographs. And But then in retrospect, I say to myself, I've got a few photographs of myself with some of these guys. But it was never in the front of my brain. The, the front of my brain was just about winning and losing. And it's not until after the careers are finished you say to yourself, damn it, I should have got a shirt. Mm. But I bet you that, uh, again, um, you could sit down with, uh, if, if someone was a real diehard soccer fan and you said, I played with, you know, George Best or I played with Beckenbauer, yeah, that would be a great conversation. But you could, uh, I'm sure there have been a few conversations that have started even with people who wouldn't necessarily be diehard soccer fans. If you said, I played with Pele, like we're talking today, who would have said, oh, really? Oh, I think most people would say you're full of nonsense. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, that's got a lot to do with the fact that that I'm going to be 17 years old this year, and uh, a lot of the people who would have watched me playing are either dead or are in an institution somewhere. Uh, <laughs> Not just because uh, of your play. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> really. But it, I think what's happening now is, and I, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, that uh, as, as far as the great names, they are not part of history. Just like my grandfather uh, was at Dunkirk, and now they make a movie of it 60 years later, and people go, oh, wow, that's fantastic, but all these guys are dead. So for me, the, my generation, the go- what I call the golden generation of soccer, with all the great individual players, they're all gone now. And uh, today it's all about Ronaldo, Messi, uh, and, and so many others, as it should be, you know, as it should be. So it really is irrelevant what I have done mm. in my life. Uh, it's part of history. And if people are interested in looking at it, they can look it up on the internet. Yeah, I, John, I'll disagree with you on that one. And, and I'll use an example that maybe is more familiar. But I mean, I mentioned Willie Mays or, uh, you know, Rocket Richard or someone. If someone said I had played a game, my first ever hockey game in the NHL, if a guy was 80 years old now and said my first ever game was lining up against Rocket Richard, I think people would still be pretty impressed by that. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you on that on that one. And uh, and again, there are certain names in professional sport, no matter what the sport is, that they will live forever. And if you've had the honor and privilege of playing with them or against them, uh, it's something to be proud of. Uh, you know, I can even remember during the Olympic Games that I was invited on board the HMS Britannia to have lunch with the, the Queen and the Royal Family. I mean, that's that's something really, really cool. But at the end of the day, uh, people think about what happens today, not about what happened yesterday. And the only time it becomes relevant is when that person dies. And then people go, oh, an icon has died. And then people go, oh, yeah, I used to play with him and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, if you that's, were... my, that's my memory, and 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 it'll probably die with me. But if you're ever going to have been able to say something like that, uh, you know, it's 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 very cool that it was the, I would argue, undisputed greatest of all time. I mean, it's 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 really nice to for all the people who played against someone who was second or third or in the discussion for top ten, but. You know, again, whether it's uh, if you played with Babe Ruth or if you played with Michael Jordan or you played with Wayne Gretzky, the, the, you know, or if you play with Pele, that's, um, you know, there's only one of each of those guys in their sport. And that's uh, that's a very cool thing. Uh, John McGrain, it's, it's a fun story and I uh, really appreciate you um, coming. I, I've, I knew for years that you had played against Pele, but I didn't know the story. Appreciate you doing this today. Hey, listen, it's my pleasure. And uh, again, Happy New Year to you. Thanks, John. And uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. That is John McGrain. Um, it's a great story. I wish, uh, I'm sure there are other people out there, even in this area, who have something like that where there is some, well, I'll tell you, my brother, here's an example. My brother-in-law, last time Paul McCartney was in town back five, six years ago, my brother-in-law was the, my two brothers-in-law were the drum major and pipe major for the Argyles and got to go on stage and play Mull of Kintyre with Paul McCartney. That See, there you go. That's... Of course, they never told me ahead of time so I could come down and, <laughs> and meet Paul McCartney. I found out when I was sitting in the audience and here they come marching onto the stage. And like, first of all, it was really cool. And then I was ticked off that they hadn't called me to let me know to come and meet him beforehand. Nonetheless, you know, at the end when all is done, you go, yeah, 
I got a chance to do that. That's, I'm sure there are other people listening even who have had a chance to perform or play or do something with the greatest at what they do. It's a, it's a cool thing. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.